Chapter 3 of the Book of This and That. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corey Morrill. The Book of This and That by Robert Lind. Chapter 3 The Sin of Dancing. It is a pleasure to see a modern clergyman expressing his horror of the dancing of the moment, as Cain and Newbolt did in St. Paul's. One had begun to fear lately that the clergy were trying to run a race of tolerance with the dramatic critics and the nuts. On the whole, I prefer clergymen in the denouncing mood. They are there to remind us that the soul does not pour out its riches in ragtime songs, that Peter is not to be bribed with trinkets, and that the gates of heaven will not, so far as is known, open to the bark of a toy dog. They are there, in a sentence, as the shaven critics of the saltatory world. The history of civilization might be interpreted with some reason as a prolonged conflict between the preachers and the dancers. The preacher and the dancer may both be necessary to us, like east and west in a map, but we feel that, like east and west, they should keep their distance from each other in censorious and reconcilement. I know, of course, that the modern anthropologist is inclined to insist upon the kinship between dancing and religion. We are told that the church was born not, it may be, under a dancing star, but at any rate under a dancing savage. The theory is that man originally expressed his deepest emotions about food, love, and war in dances. In the course of time, the leaping groups felt the need of a leader, and gradually the leader of the dance evolved into a hero, or representative of the group soul and from that he afterwards swelled into a god. This, we are asked to believe, is the lineage of Zeus. The theory strikes me as being too simple to be true. It is like an attempt to spell a long word with a single letter. At the same time, it gains color from the fact that the heads of the church have continually shown a tendency to dancing since the days of King David. We have it on good authority that in the Latin church the bishops were called praesules because they led the dances in the church choir on feast days. It is a fact of some significance, indeed, that at more than one period of history it has been the heretics rather than the orthodox who have raged most furiously against dancing. The Albigenses and the Waldenses are both examples of this. Superficially, this may seem to weaken my contention that preaching and dancing can no more become friends than the lion and the unicorn. But if you reflect for a moment, you will see that it is the heretics rather than the orthodox who are, of all men, the most given to preaching. Bishops preach as a matter of duty. Savonarola and Mr. Shaw preach for the religious pleasure of it. So rare a thing it is to find an orthodox clergyman of standing doing anything that deserves the name of preaching. And by preaching, I mean protesting in capable words against the subordination of life to luxury. That, whenever he does so, the newspapers put it on their posters among the great events, like a scandal about a cabinet minister or an earthquake. It is not difficult to see why the preachers have usually been so doubtful about the dancers. It is simply that dancing is, for the most part, a rhythmical pantomime of sex. It is the most haremish of pastimes. One is not surprised to learn that Henry VIII was the most expert of royal dancers. He was an enthusiast for the kissing dances of his day. Indeed, even before he had abandoned his youthful straightness for the moral code of a farmyard that had gone off its head, I can imagine how a preacher with his craft at his fingers' ends could deduce Henry's downfall from those first delicate trippings. Even the Encyclopedia Britannica is driven to admit the presence of the amorous element in dancing. Actual contact of the partners, it insists, 
is quite intelligible as a matter of pure dancing, for, apart altogether from the pleasure of the embrace, the harmony of the double rotation adds very much to the enjoyment. But that reference to the pleasure of the embrace is fatal to the sentence. How are we simple people as we whirl in the waltz to know whether it is the pleasure of the embrace or the harmony of the double rotation that is making us glow so? The preachers will certainly not give us the benefit of the doubt. They will follow the lead of Byron, who, in his horror at the popularization of the waltz, declared that Terpeshor was henceforth the least a vestal virgin of the nine. Many people will remember the letter which Byron prefaced to the waltz over the significance of Horace Hornman, supposed to be a country gentleman from the Midlands. Describing his sensations on first seeing his wife waltzing, Mr. Hornham says, Judge of my surprise to see poor Mrs. Hornman with her arms half round the loins of a huge, hussar-looking gentleman I never set eyes on before, and his, to say truth, rather more than half round her waist, turning round and round and round to a damned seesaw, up-and-down sort of tune, that reminded me of the black joke. Cynics explain Byron's attitude to dancing as a matter of envy, since he himself was too lame to waltz. At the same time, I fancy that an anthropologist from Mars, if he visited the Earth, would take the same view of the drama of the waltz as Byron did. I do not mean to say that the waltz cannot be danced in a sublime innocence. It can, and often is. But the point is that sex is the arch-musician of it, and whether you approve of waltzing or disapprove of it will depend upon whether, like the preachers, you regard sex as ahula and ahaloiba, or, like the poets, as April and the Song of the Stars. It is worth remembering in this connection that a great preacher like Huxley took much the same view of poetry that Byron took of dancing. Most of it, he said, seemed to him to be little more than sensual caterwauling. Tolstoy, if I am not mistaken, interpreted Romeo and Juliet in the same spirit. This kind of analysis, whether it is just foolish, always shocks the crowd, which can never admit the existence of the senses without blushing for them. Confirmed in its sentimentalism, and therefore given to harping on the sensual string, it swears that it finds the Russian ballet more edifying than church, and would have no objection to seeing the merry widow waltz introduced into a mother's meeting. There is nothing in which we are such hypocrites as our pleasures. That is why some of us like the preachers. Even if they are grossly inhuman in wanting to take our amusements away from us, they at least insist that we shall submit them to a realistic analysis. In this, they are excellent servants of the scientific spirit. What, then, is a reasonable attitude to adopt towards sex and dancing? Obviously, we cannot abolish sex, even if we wish to do so, and if we try to chain it up, it will merely become crabbed like a dog. On the other hand, there is all the difference in the world between putting a dog on a chain and encouraging it to go mad and bite half the parish. There is nearly as wide a distance separating the courtly dances of the 18th century from the cakewalk and the Apache dance from the Irish reel. Priests, I know, in whom the gift of preaching has turned sour, have been as severe on innocent as on furious dances. But this is merely an exaggeration of the prevailing sense of mankind that sex is a wild animal and most difficult to tame into a fireside pet. It is upon the civilization of this animal, nonetheless, though not upon the butchering of it, that the decencies of the world depend. And this is exercise for a hero, for the animal in question has a desperate tendency to revert to type. One noticed how its eye bulged with the memory of African forests when the cakewalk affronted the sun a few years ago. The cakewalk, I admit, seemed a right and rapturous thing enough when it was danced by those in whose veins was the recent blood of Africa. 
but when young gentlemen began to introduce it as a figure in the lancers and suburban black parlors one resented it not merely as an emasculated parody but as an act of dishonest innocence but everywhere it has been the tendency of dancing in recent years to become more noisily sexual i am not thinking of the dancing and undress which for a time captured the music halls that is almost the least sexual dancing we have had the dancing of isadora duncan was of good report as a painting by old sir joshua we may pass over the russian ballet too because of the art which often raised it to beauty though it is interesting to speculate what st bernard would have thought of nijinsky but as for ragtime it is a silly madness a business for maenads of both sexes and all those gesticulations of the human frame known as bunny hugs turkey trots and the rest of it are condemned by their very names as tolerable only in menagerie on the other hand because the bunny and man and the turkey and woman have revived themselves with such impudence are we to get out our guns against all dancing far from it one is not going to sacrifice the flowering grace of Janet or pavlova with her genius of the butterflies because of the multitude of fools all we can do is insist upon the recognition of the fact that dancing may be good or bad as eggs are good or bad and to remind the world that in dancing as in eggs freshness is even more beautiful than decadence perhaps some of the performances of the russian ballet would come off limping from such a test opinions will differ about that in any case one cannot help the logic of one's belief each of us no doubt contains something of the preacher and something of the dancer and our enthusiasms depend upon which of the two is dominant in us meanwhile we are likely to go on preaching against our dancing and dancing against our preaching till the end of time that merely proves the completeness of our humanity it makes for balance like as i have said east and west in a map that surely is a conclusion which ought to satisfy everybody end of chapter three the sin of dancing